Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I'm really delighted to have somebody I've respected and known for about 12 years uh, when um, we were both introduced by Johnny Gray, who uh, was a colonel in the army and very successful and CEO of the Tennis Integrity Unit. And now he's a managing director at Ankura. Um, and, and he said, this lady is a very inspiring leader. Uh, I've met her on my Harvard Business School course, and I think you should work together. And we did, and we've stayed in touch. And now uh, I'll let her introduce herself. Well, first off, thank you so much for inviting me on, Jonathan. It's great to be sharing time with you again. Um, so it's a great privilege to be here. Uh, so I'm Sarah, I'm Sarah Ashman. I am currently global CEO of Wolfo Linz, and I've been at Wolfo Linz for almost 30 years, so a long time now. Uh, Wolf Olins, if you don't know who they are, and I wouldn't expect you to, uh, are a brand consultancy. And you might not know us, but you could be aware of our clients. We were responsible for creating the brand London 2012, somewhat controversially, and a whole bunch of other stuff that's uh, a lot less controversial, working with the likes of, say, GSK, uh, which was a brand we, we launched this year with their CEO, Emma Walmsley, um, to great success. So yes, wonderful company entirely values driven, all about using brand as a lever to create positive change in the world, basically, which is why I love it and why I've been there so long. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you. It's really lovely having you on. And every time I, I came and visited you and saw your offices, there was just such a vibrancy about the place and that, that whole thing of creativity and innovation. I remember listening to a couple of talks. I think I even brought my uh one of my daughters along to listen and yes, it, it was just yeah very very inspirational for her as I think she was about 16 at the time or something she's uh Harriet's now having got a first at Bristol she's now you know doing very successfully in a in a tech company uh doing sort of uh induction and uh leadership development but yes it was it was a really good experience um and and as people Others, and you're very modest about yourself, but, you know, have said they found you very inspiring and you've, you've done terribly well in in that you've been a key element of, of the organization, Wolf Orleans, but now you're the global CEO. Um, what does inspiring leadership mean to you when you've met other inspiring leaders in, in perhaps some of the brands that you've supported and helped or colleagues you've worked with? What qualities um, would you call out that are important in the men and women you know? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, and I just want to jump in as well and say I really don't consider myself inspiring at all. Uh, I think I'm just hardworking. You know, most people in my position would probably say the same thing. So in terms of qualities I look for in other people, those who really motivate me, I think they, they always come from a, a very kind of personal values-driven place. You can really see that in them some people might describe that as authenticity. Uh, I think it's just that they're comfortable being themselves and uh, and probably have learned like I, I have over the years that it's really difficult trying to be something that you're not. 
And so they've leaned into who they are and they found a way of making that work for them in whatever role they're in. And they know where their line is in terms of how they like to operate and what they believe in and, and where they won't cross that line. I have a deep, deep, profound respect for people who know that about themselves and display it in how they deal with you. Um, so that means a lot to me. So I like people who are very upfront, transparent, kind-hearted, straightforward to deal with, have a sense of humor about them, are very personal and are very grounded and down to earth. Um, and then of course, it's always fabulous being surrounded by people who are very visionary and creative and you know have these kind of bright ideas and sparks. But that's where I think teamwork probably comes in. I, I, I wouldn't expect one person to like be all of those things. It's just impossible, which is why I go back to this sense of people being, knowing who they are and embodying that to the, the best of their ability rather than trying to be something they're not. Yeah, I, I think, wasn't it, uh, it's better to be a first-class version of yourself than a second-class version of somebody else. Yes. Uh, and it was Oscar Wilde, who said, be yourself. Everybody else is taken. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, I, I, do, I do completely commend uh, that viewpoint. Thank you. Uh, the, the next thing I'm always interested in is people's life journeys and the highs and lows. And, and people often think when I've been through this crisis or this good time, then I'll get on with life. But actually, in those transitions, we have most of our life and most of the experiences. And everybody's had different upbringings and challenges as they get through their lives that has shaped the leader they are today. So I just wonder, um, and you don't have to go into any specifics, but just in, in your life, the the events and the people who've shaped you to be the leader you are today, would you call out some of those moments and those people? Mm -hmm. uh, I've got, I'm really fortunate in that I have so many to, to choose from. And actually, <clears throat> if I think about my upbringing, which was kind of wonderful and definitely a bit weird, uh, I think I learned an awful lot. I had a sort of accelerated learning period and I'll explain a bit more about what I mean in that I spent the very early years of my childhood living abroad and that gave me exposure to lots of different types of cultures and lots of different types of people. Uh, and because my mother was quite nomadic and very adventurous and it was just the two of us for quite some time, uh, I just had this kind of wonderful sense of the world being so much bigger than it might have been otherwise. And it was an absolute gift. And I spent a lot of time around adults uh, and I was sort of treated a bit like a, an adult, which also kind of accelerated my learning in a lot of different ways. And so, um, and so I had that wonderful experience. And then when I moved back to the UK, because I'd had this kind of adventure and, and always been the outsider and always been very different, it was then very interesting trying to and challenging trying to make the transition into conforming into something that was very structured like going to school was very difficult for me because I'd had such a free existence before uh, and starting to recognize the sort of social structures that you have to live by was was very uh, challenging and I, I rebelled against it a great deal at first and I didn't see the point of it and I found it very difficult and you know, that led me to be quite mischievous in lots of different ways. And But all through that, that time, I think it gave me a good appreciation of what it feels like to be an outsider, what it feels like to retain a strong sense of your own opinion and judgment on things and not feel like you have to follow the herd just for the sake of it. 
uh, and a kind of appreciation of how you learn and that going to school is not the same as getting an education necessarily. So it taught me lots of sort of, I felt like I was quite a well-rounded person from quite a young age because of the experiences I'd had. Um, and because of the kind of interesting variety of people that my mum kind of created as a friendship circle, I never had to go through any uncomfortable moments understanding um, what it felt like to be from a different culture or what it felt like to um, be gay or, you know, she just had so many interesting people in her circle that the idea of diversity and how you make people feel comfortable and how you integrate, how you think about different things and have opinionated conversations together and all of that stuff and work stuff around a kitchen table, you know, so that you can make get your thinking to a better place and have fun doing it. All of those things were quite natural as part of my upbringing, which I uh, I came to later really appreciate. Um, I never had any of those really awkward moments trying to figure out whether I could talk about religion or not or how I felt about things because mm. we'd already thrashed that all out as a family. Um, so that was really useful. There was also some quite traumatic moments uh, because I had quite an un unconventional sort of upbringing and it was uh, it had its ups and downs. So we, we spent times when we had money we spent most of it being very poor. Uh, you know, I grew up on benefits in a single parent family. I was a dinner token kid. Uh, I didn't have a lot of social advantages, all of these kind of things. I was very aware from an early age when I got back to the UK about as much about what I did, didn't have as what I did have. Uh, and that was an interesting sort of transition and has probably shaped some of the choices that I've made later in life in terms of wanting freedom uh, and also wanting security at the same at the same time. So I think a lot of what my childhood gave me was um, a good grounding, uh, a good sense of who I am and what's important to me, and an incredible sense of wanting to um, learn and become better and self-actualize, if you like, if, if you use the kind of, you know, mm. language of coaching or anything else. I had a good sense of potential and wanting to realize it. And, uh, you know, who, who could ask for more in that regard? Yeah, no, I mean, what an amazing uh, way to learn from all those experiences that life does throw at you. And um, I, I think from that, my question would be, so uh, if you were to pick out one among many proudest, happiest moment for you um, and what you learned from that moment. And then on the other side of the coin, one of your darkest moments in your personal life or your work uh, and what you learned from that as well? Uh, so I think my happiest kind of moments and place are always with friends and family. Uh, and, you know, I had, I had an experience quite randomly starting to work in a company where I, um, about 30 years ago again, where I met both my husband and my closest friend. And so I think it, if I was to sort of chart my life back to one moment that was tr really transformative, it, it was that experience and what it's brought me since. And, uh, you know, it's just so much happiness out of that support and love and, and everything else that it generates. So, uh, so that without realizing it at the time, that was the, the happiest happenstance that could have, could have taken place. And it's, it's certainly shaped my life ever since. In terms of difficult times, 
I've had quite a few challenging times and they started quite young. Um, and in each of them, I think they've taught me something really important and I go back to it every time I have a difficult, challenging time now, which is uh, how do you flip the switch from feeling like a victim to focusing on the things that you could actually change? And I guess I had a moment in my mid to late teens and felt, life felt very tough for, for a period of time. And uh, it felt like a sort of epiphany at the time, this kind of you get to choose moment. And that's that I think has really stood me in really good stead over the years, this idea of taking a step back and making a choice about whether you're gonna let things happen to you or whether you're going to make choices, even if those in really grim times, those choices feel like they're quite narrow. This idea of deciding how you're gonna feel about that is really important to me. And that old adage of, if you think it's gonna go well or you think it's gonna go badly, it will is very true for me. Mm. And so I think the attitude and the recognition of what you can control and what you can't control and how you feel about that is really important whenever you're in a, a kind of highly challenging situation. I'm so um, taken by what you just said, Sarah, and I, I, it sounds very much that there's a theme running through what you said. I don't know whether you would label it this way, but I certainly would, of, of a stoic philosophy. And I wondered if you've read much around it in your wide reading on your various Harvard courses and things you've done. Have you have you studied much on this topic? Yeah, it's bedtime reading for me every night, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> I have read a little bit. I wouldn't claim to be an expert, but my grandmother actually was a big fan of the Stoics. Uh, and um, she had many roles in her lifetime, one of which was as a teacher. Uh, and so I grew up with lots of different kind of philosophies and concepts being thrown around at home, which was you know, really interesting and useful. Um, and I do think there's a, a certain amount of just accepting in life that you can't have the highs without the lows and you have to find your way through how you choose to, to handle that. And I, uh, I quite like the, if you think of three concentric circles, I quite like the idea of your comfort zone, your stretch zone, and then the kind of panic zone and how you find yourself kind of moving fluidly from comfort to stretch and avoiding panic <laughs> and I think it's a it, for me at least it's quite an interesting little model and I think where you are in your life I think it's very seasonal your life you know sometimes you're going to have lots of time to spend on personal development other times you're really not and I think sort of having a little model in your head of I'm ready for a stretch or life's ready to stretch me, I need to figure out, you know, how to get the most out of that versus you can't sit in your comfort zone forever because amazing things don't happen in your comfort zone. <laughs> you have to be able to move out of that occasionally or regularly in order to, you know, achieve interesting um, things that you might not otherwise do or expand your capabilities and, and find you're capable of things that you never imagined. You know, it's important. Yeah, well, I don't know whether we ever chatted about Time to Think by Nancy Klein. And yeah. um, her latest book is uh, uh, called The Promise That Changes Everything. I have tried to persuade her to come on the podcast because she's such an inspiration. But she's 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 quite a modest lady and she prefers to write. Uh, and, and she's just dropped me a note back uh, to say that she's you know working on her next book. But The Promise That Changes Everything, I Won't Interrupt You is the name of her book. 
Um, but Nancy taught me one model, which was uh, beautifully put with, with a, an X and a Y graph and a 45 degree line between the two of them, because I'm quite visual like your husband. Um, and that the, uh, the Y graph going up the page is the challenges, different levels of challenges that you're facing in your life and your work. And, and the X graph along the bottom is your abilities to handle those challenges. So the 45 degree line is a nice boundary that anything below the 45, it's easily within your capabilities. It's not too stretching. Sometimes you're a bit bored actually, because you're not really having that, that stretch zone you talked about. On the line, you're quite matched. You, you, you've really got the sweet spot of, the, the, that's my talk, sorry, the, the challenge you face. And um, the, you, your abilities, Archie, come in. Come He's in. found something interesting to play with back there. Yeah, he has. He has. Um, come in. Come in. Yeah, yeah, come in. We've, um, we've got his girlfriend staying, and uh, she's just getting used to the house. So she's just calling out, and he's responding. Um, Brilliant. <laughs> and uh, yeah, above the 45, that's the interesting, that's the interesting area. Um, it's where you're being stretched. You, you, it's above and beyond it's where you could fail you don't you've never done it before you don't know what's going on and and that's the sort of area of growth I, I don't know where that resonates for you yeah absolutely and I mean I always I enjoy learning so much and sometimes it's handed to you you have no choice and other times you have to go out and initiate it really don't you but life's very um you know gets very dull otherwise yeah and and uh, what bit of advice would you um, give the young Sarah Ashman if you went back to yourself age 16 in in the uh, DeLorean time machine and you said, hey, look, I've, I've gone to the future. I've just come back to tell you this matters. Don't worry about that. What would you what bit of advice would you give yourself? I think um, I think I'd say or I'd, I'd certainly want to make sure I didn't worry so much about what was going to happen as opposed to just enjoy it and I wouldn't be so hard on myself and so I guess the thing I'd want to say most of all is it's going to be great you know you're going to really enjoy it um you're going to have lots of adventures some of it's going to be tough most of it's going to be great and mm. you know don't worry so much and don't be hard on yourself yeah great great bit of wisdom and, and if you could relive your life again um would there be a, a thing you change uh, or was there a crucible moment, a defining moment? You mentioned about meeting your husband and your best friend that maybe another one that, that really has shaped the leader you are today as the, the global CEO of Wolf Owens. I think, I think I had a moment very relatively early on in my career at Wolf Owens where I realized the, uh, the, how much other people can really help and shake shape circumstances for you. And that stayed with me in terms of recognizing what it did for me and what how you can do that for others, uh, I guess. And uh, that sounds a bit abstract. So let me tell you what I'm really talking about. I was in a meeting once with probably the biggest client up until that point that I'd ever worked with. And they were really important to the business and uh, they were very big. And I was working with someone in the business who was very important for the first time and getting to, to, to know him, lovely, incredible guy called Doug Hamilton. 
and everyone treated him as if he could walk on water because he was so good at what he did and could transform you know any job that he was involved in at the time and was shaping the industry in lots of ways and I was sitting in a meeting with him and with the client and uh, the client asked him a question and he was so casual about it and yes yeah I knew he was doing it really intentionally he just kind of looked at them and said well I don't know why you're asking me because I I don't know anything about that Um, Sarah's the one who has all the knowledge here you really need to be talking to her about that I don't even need to be in the room and it was it was done in in such a sort of off the cuff I didn't even need to think about this kind of a way but it just showed for me an incredible appreciation of the situation I was in the sponsorship that I needed at that moment and the confidence that I needed to be able to operate with this particular client and in that moment it changed everything you know the client started to in, in talk to me and engage with me about how we were working together in a way that they never would have done otherwise and it would have been really easy for him to say yeah of course I can answer that you know I'm the I'm, I'm the reason that we're all here at the end of the day um so it was it was very generous and it set me up uh, and really made me remember you know it, it was a, a change in pathway mm. um for me which which, which which is why it's a crucible moment yeah 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 that's lovely i think it was um the poem two roads divide in a yellow wood and i took the one less traveled and that's made all the difference um lovely poem um doug sounds really special special man um and we're lucky to have these sort of mentors to us and the helpers um and they often have really memorable sense of integrity and moral question which is why i want to go around the inspiring leadership compass the the research that lee and i did um a little top tips for inspiring leaders mm-hmm. um but the the moral questions were sort of the true north the bit that's sadly missing unfortunately in too many politicians around the world uh which we've seen only too well in the last few years but for you, um, your true north of what makes you authentic, uh, I'd be interested if there was, you know, two or three um, values and principles that you stick by that have really helped you. And what have you done when you've slipped off from those values and you need to bring yourself back on again? Mm. So I think the, the first one would be around staying very grounded. <clears throat> I never want to forget where I've come from and lose appreciation for for all of the, the great things that are going on in my life. And especially the more senior you get, I think it's it can be quite easy to, your expectations, people treat you differently and I think your expectations about how you should be treated can change. And I never want to be one of those people, as it were, who, who starts behaving you know, too far from where I started. Uh, I, I think I'd, I'd I'd be unhappy with myself. And so from a moral standpoint, if, if I ever veer off where I think that should be, uh, that's a very unhappy place for me. And, and I'm really fortunate to have great people around me who don't mind calling a spade a spade and don't mind calling me out. You know, I, I, I can't imagine ever being able to veer too far off that without <laughs> without someone knocking me back into shape very quickly. Um, and I, I'm very grateful for that uh, because I think it's really important. And 
Uh, and I also, I'm very conscious of the fact that things are very ephemeral. You know, I'm not going to be local CEO forever, but I am going to be Sarah forever. And that's, that really matters. Uh, so I think that's probably the, the, the most important one to me. Um, how it, uh, and therefore how I treat other people is really important to me. And the kind of industry I've chosen and the business that I work in is entirely people driven. And, and, and I, and I love that. That's, that, that's why I'm drawn to it because I think people are so important and how you bring people together and convene people and how you get things done together and how you treat each other is uh, super important. And having grown up the way I did with, uh, you know, my mom was a hippie, so she's not in the least bit interested in what I do for a living and what my role is. She's very interested in how that's contributing to the world and how it's making people's lives better and how the people I work with interact. That's what I've grown up with. Um, and so, you know, how, how you treat people around you and how you engage with people is super important to me. And if I felt I was, uh, or anyone was good enough to tell me that I wasn't doing that in the right way, uh, I'd wanna snap back into what I consider to be the right behavior very, very quickly, yeah. So the, those, are, those are the drivers for me. And they are incredibly powerful ones and they're very subtly but significantly different from other CEOs and other leaders that I've had on the 235 episodes. And, and they will stay with me for a long time, particularly not forgetting where we've come from. Uh, you know, I grew up in uh, a caravan on the edge of a airfield because my parents couldn't afford to have a married quarter because they were marrying below the age at which you were considered to be the right age to get a naval quarter. Mm -hmm. And um, and and yeah, my mum brought three of us up on her own because my father was killed when I was two and a half and we didn't have much money. I was called Stone Age Perks because they thought my clothes at school came from the Stone Age because they were passed down from about five other kids. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think I, I, I'm a, Embarrassed to say, at times, I've sort of forgotten where I came from, particularly when I was working as the assistant to the head of the army. I almost thought I was, you know, I was something. Uh, what, what is it that saying? I, I always wanted to be something, but I realise now as I'm older, I should have been more specific. Uh, oh, no, I always wanted to be somebody, <laughs> and I should have been more specific. But but I, I had a salary lesson from the old field marshal who I worked for. We went to visit the SAS in Hereford. It was all terribly cool. And, you know, James Bond helicopter picked us up from the top of a building in London, just the two of us. And we flew there and they showed us lots of uh, exciting things I can't even talk about. I have to kill you all afterwards. But it was really interesting. And we went into this cinema, this large cinema, which seated 200 people. And he went and sat in the middle row to get a briefing about what had happened in a war and various battles that had gone on and things that are covert. And I went to sit beside him as his assistant. And he went, what are you doing? Go and sit at the back. I went, oh, right. So I trumped to the back of the cinema. I could stay in the cinema, but I just didn't near my place. And I sat right at the back. And I thought, that's really interesting. He just He's just making the point, you're not special. You're not me or the badge of honor. You're just helping me do the role and this is really important stuff he slightly overplayed it but i think the point i got was just don't get too my mother would describe don't get too big for your boots you know don't let your head get so swollen you can't get through the door and 
I remember just one final anecdote telling my mother, uh, Mother, I've, I've just run the, the World Championships of the Cyprus Double Mountain Marathon. Yes, dear, very interesting. And what did you have for lunch? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> she sort of moved you on. It's like, don't get too high and mighty. Uh, and, and I think those that I know have come from tough or humble background, some of them have often forgotten it. And they and they become more pompous and more up themselves than others. And it's it's a good it's really struck me what you said there, Sarah. Stay very grounded. Any any further thoughts you have before we talk about purpose and meaning? Well, uh, only that uh, I, I go back to sort of where I started, which it's it's really important to just know yourself and what works for you. And that's a, a journey of discovery, really. And mm. there's some can be some very sharp and uncomfortable moments in that where you discover, you know, failings, flaws, things that you're not good at, um, things you don't like about yourself. Mm. And I think that's very natural. And I think if you want to, um, you know, develop and grow as a as a person, it, it it's it's where you have to go. Mm. And and also at some point. You, and this is where the kind of don't be hard on yourself comes in. You also have to let some of it go. You know, there are, I think some of the best of advice I had when I was starting to uh, develop and get more senior, uh, and it's certainly something I've said to other people, is there is a point where you just have to recognise you're not going to get good at some things. And that is a, can be a blessing because it just means you start collaborating with other people who are good at things that you're not. And you just have to let your ego go, really, in that regard. You can't be good at everything. Um, and you just, you know, you, you just need to move on. <laughs> yeah, that's so, so true. Collaborate, you can't be good at everything. Uh, and then going on to purpose and meaning. Uh, they call it Dharma, vocation, calling. What, why, Sarah, do you do what you do? And you've done it for 30 years. Well, I think as... As I might have said already, uh, it's a very people-driven business, and and that's very inspiring. And so the the purpose of the organisation really a, appealed to me when I joined, and it's very real, it's, and it's very uniting. You know, people join Wolf Olins because they want to make a difference. <clears throat> the business was born in the '60s, and you can really tell it still has that vibe of the world can be better and the work that we should do should help it be better. And the people who join are really drawn and attracted to that, to that notion. And we get to work with some, we're relatively small. We're big in our industry, but in the grand scheme of things, we're relatively small. And we get to work with just these fantastic and often very large organizations as well as very small ones who can pull off incredible change in the world. So we often like to say, you know, we don't change the world, but our, our clients do and and we get to have like really deep and meaningful conversations with them about how their brand can help them help them do that so so for me it's you know how do you affect the biggest change you can with the skills that you have uh mobilizing all of the the, the possibilities that you have which is for us as our uh, connecting our people with the right opportunities with our clients and then seeing the outcome of that and I mean, it, it's really hard not to be inspired by that and, and get develop a very grand sense of purpose as a result of doing that day in and day out. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And indeed, uh, I was just uh, following the news over the last couple of weeks where 
a very famous brand, which will remain nameless, but if you've been following news, you'll know, decided finally to cut ties with a sportsman or a, a superstar who happened to have very extreme views on which were very discriminatory and and not at all uh, nice for the Jewish members who are listening. And uh, uh, but it took them a while to do it, and, and and what they said of their values and 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 how they paused and thought about the cost of it and the money involved. Mm. I don't know whether you had a, a view on uh, how you'd advise other clients, not that one, but other clients when they have this kind of challenge. Mm. Yeah, I certainly do. Um, and we've, we've had lots of conversations internally. We have lots of conversations with our clients and, uh, and I've seen a few of these, you know, lots of these situations come up. I think today everything is so transparent and it moves so quickly because of the world being flat through technology that any company, and by extension its brand as its expression in the world, uh, needs to be really clear and plan ahead for what it's going to do if, you know, the if scenario. I don't think you want to be like thinking about that in the moment. I think that's that's something that you want to have scenario planned and have a point of view on and one that flows directly from the values of your organisation so that it becomes really easy for you to act when the moment arrives. And uh, And I don't think it's something you outsource. So from a yes you can work with other people in the world who help get your message out but I think you know it has to I think of businesses as as being like people you know they're constructed like people they're you know they they, they need to know what their values are and they need to know how they're going to be able to act and you have to shorten the distance between how you feel how you feel you should act in the world and when and how you do it it has and that's why I think being able to um have planned beforehand and then just be able to put that plan into operation is so important. And I think the case you're talking about at the moment is has been difficult because of the delay. And I think a lot of large organizations because of the hierarchies and the structures and the legalities and the unpicking of some things, there's some very big deals there that will affect the profitability of a company that is listed on the stock exchange, for example. Um, you obviously have to go through that, but you have to do it really quickly. And if that means you've got people working 24 hours to do it, then that's what it takes. You can't afford to sit on the fence. It's a very uncomfortable place to be for too long. You have to get yeah. down and you have to be very uh, forceful about where your beliefs are and you have to put them into action. Very well put. And and I think someone once said to me, uh, Professor Roger Steer, who um, works on ethics and integrity, and I'm just looking for his book on my shelf, but but Roger, uh, yeah, Ethicability is his book, Roger Steer. Um, and there's this, he, he speaks about corporations, which are a legal identity. So they have an identity, but they have no heart and they have no soul. But we think of them as people, but actually they can be psychopathic because that's what a psychopath is like. They have an identity, but no heart, no soul. And that's why organization like Wolf Olin's is so special because you've given it heart and soul and identity, which is why people love working for you and with your organization and your clients do. I know this from, from, from the 360 feedback you had all those time ago, but I think too many organizations become so big and so unwieldy that they are like the corporate psychopath 
that they just have this legal identity and legally you're entitled to this. This is what the law says. So we're going to do that. But like, where's the heart and soul of it? I don't know. Does that resonate at all for you? Yeah, and I think it's it's easy to become disassociated uh, over time, you know. So I, I did a talk a few years ago. This is this is quite a tangent, but I finished. I was talking about AI and how technology could affect us in the future, and why we needed to be very thoughtful about the bias we're baking into technology and how that's sort of showing up on the other side of things. Um, something that lots of people are talking about now, but this is probably about four or five years ago. And I ended talking about the um, Eichmann trial because it because a, it's a, it was a shocking period and it's good to kind of latch onto something that makes something extreme to make a point sometimes. And I was very taken with this idea of how he would represent what he was doing, which was effectively operationalizing human destruction. It's, you know, I, I make the trains run on time while well, those trains are taking people to concentration camps versus how other people would imagine that. And my grandmother, when I was very young, introduced me to the Milgram experiments, which for lots of reasons uh, probably never should have been conducted ethically, um, but they were. And they were trying to get at what makes people behave in ways that you just wouldn't expect them to, you know, any rational person would not make these decisions. And although organizations are not like that at all, thank goodness, I think it is easy for people to sleepwalk their way into making decisions that afterwards they would freely admit make no sense whatsoever. Mm. And I think if you become kind of institutionalized, if you see a lot of people behaving in ways around you that you think is the norm and you have to conform, if there's no uh, freedom of expression to voice opinions, you know, these kind of things, I think you can end up in some really weird and dark places uh, without anyone having said that that's what they wanted to do or set out to achieve that. It just happens. Mm. And then you have to unpick a whole lot of stuff very quickly. So I'm a big believer in um, leadership needing to be very thoughtful about the context they're setting. As Carl Heiselman, who was my CEO a few years back, he used to say, um, a fish rots from the head. And so leadership, you have to get it right from the top. And I really took that to heart at the time. And I think he was a, a good example of, of trying very hard to be that best kind of leader. So I think there are things in organizations that you want to get right in order to set the context for everybody else to know what right feels like. Uh, and then if, and if you don't, you know, you can't really blame lots of people or the organization for bad things happening because, you know, someone's got to give that some shape and direction and focus. That was a bit of a ramble, I'm afraid, Jonathan. No, no, no. It was a very interesting one. And being a TEDx speaker as you are and hosting big TEDx events, I, I can see why you're very popular. But you also managed to bring in the whole and, and also connections between things. So for me, um, I found that incredibly useful. Uh, thank you. Uh, what, what about a slightly different one on around the compass, which is health quotient? you know many leadership models that you've studied at harvard and elsewhere in your study um cover many aspects of different things they say this is what good leadership is but we found in when we were looking at what makes inspiring leaders and high performing leaders and teams that health quotient is very important and we were talking about this perhaps some 10 years ago where we we're going nah, you know but now of course everybody's talking about brain health mental health um they talk about physical health uh, diet nutrition sleep uh, but in those days, you know, 
even 10 years ago and certainly my days in the army you know sleep is for wimps i sleep when i die uh, when i'm dead i'll sleep then uh, and they never kind of got it but what's your uh, your view on physical and mental health and and what tips work for you i think it's super important and uh, i feel like again i had a good start in life my uh, along with my sister we were both raised vegetarian and there was a heavy accent on uh uh, you know, good things out, good things into your body means good things out, as it were, in terms of energy and and everything else. So, so we were always encouraged to run about outside, eat healthily, um, you know, interact with other people around us. So, some of the basics, I think, of, of of what's very sustaining and gives you good health. So, I've always taken it very seriously, um, but at the same time, there's been periods in my life where. Uh, I have definitely overextended myself. I came close to burnout uh, a long time ago now, but that was that was a bit of a wake up call for me in terms of you can't burn the candle at both ends and do all the things that you you, you want to do without the, without showing up in a negative way. And and since then, I've been more careful about understanding where I get my energy from and how I manage that. So I travel a lot for my job internationally. I always have across lots of different time zones. And I have developed or come to understand the things that work best for me in doing that, you know, eating what I consider to be well, making sure that I don't try and do too much. Uh, and I, I never have quite as much energy and can go for quite as long as I would like to. So I've just had, had to learn when do I do my best work? When, what time of the day am I better at thinking? What time of the day am I better at just hanging out with people and talking through the things that need to get done versus trying to do any big intellectual kind of thinking work. And I, I, I think that's very useful um, and understanding where you get your nourishment from, you know, how much time do you have to spend with friends? How much time do you have to spend filling up the tank? You know, just being inspired by the world and getting curious about the world. Mm, no, beautifully put. And, and it is really important to get that work-life integration as well as the the, you know, we're in the energy business. The energy we put into ourselves and the way we we manage our own energy is then how we can help others give discretionary life energy to clients and customers. Um, nothing worse than a burnt out person in a team trying to do that. Um, the other thing is is emotional intelligence, uh, emotional and social intelligence. It's been obviously very popular for for many years. Uh, IQ accounts for some. Uh, 5% of our, 6% of our success, whereas EQ is about 30% of our success. And the other components account for the rest of it around the campus. But um, how do you build your skills in rapport, listening, influence, and emotional intelligence, Sarah? Because you do make great connections with people. Uh, trial and error. <laughs> so uh, I, I wouldn't claim to be an expert, but I think everything starts with listening, doesn't it? Um, and trying to put yourself in someone else's uh, shoes and uh, trying to put your own ego in the backseat, you know, rather than, you know, you hear this expression of some, it feels like when you're talking to some people, they're only pulled, they're, they're, they're only looking at you, waiting for you to pause so they can jump in and say something as opposed to uh, kind of properly hearing you. So, um, yeah, so I try and, I try and spend a lot of time creating a sort of atmosphere and temperature where it's okay to talk and for people to express an error and opinion, especially as 
as I get sort of older and more senior where the air gets a bit thinner and people like to tell you perhaps what you they think you might want to hear rather than what you should hear uh, and then I try and listen very hard and I think I've developed a nose over the years especially as I have gotten senior that when someone tells me there might be a bit of this going on somewhere that actually means something's on fire um, and when someone says I'm feeling a little bit like this actually means they're definitely feeling like that and uh, and so when I say trial and error I'm not kidding it's like you know literally like sensing your way around a conversation and trying to listen for the trigger words that mean something that perhaps you might have missed otherwise and and then beyond that I think it's just trying to find points of connection uh we've all been in situations in rooms with people that trigger us in some way or uh we just find it really hard to to, to kind of find a point of connection you always can and there's always a reason and it's not always you you know, sometimes people just had an argument on the bus on the way in and that's had a, that's kind of coloured how things are or they're under pressures that you don't understand. So I feel just like having an appreciation of that is is really useful in life for your own sanity as much as anything. Yeah, well, you remind me when people are saying they're feeling a little bit this or whatever it is, I'm, I'm reminded personally of uh, the, the late Chancellor of the Exchequer saying that things were a little bit bumpy or turbulent, whatever it was, which was the understatement of the year. Uh, and then in the Korean War, when the uh, the brigadier in charge of the British contingent, which had just been surrounded and swarmed over by about a million Chinese troops, told his American general who he was reporting to, things are a bit sticky out here. And uh, the American general didn't reinforce him at all because he thought it was just fine. It was just a bit sticky. Uh, what he didn't mean was it was just hell on earth and people were dying everywhere and they were completely overrun. So I think the understatement, as you say, you've got to cue into But when you say, just tell me a bit more, what more? Uh, and, and out it comes. Um, and, and when, you know, you pass people go, how are you? I'm, I'm fine. I'm not getting that you're fine how are you really well actually my grandfather's just died and i was very close to him and i'm really feeling quite depressed and as you say it comes out later on which takes me on nicely to cq collaborative cognitive and cultural intelligence which really decision making but yet also collectively i think you talked about this the, the importance of collaboration and collective work because you can't do it all you can't be grouped with everything and and the importance of diversity equality and inclusion and so i I wondered how you've developed uh, skills in this, and if you were to give one top tip, uh, as because mm. um, we can't, we, sadly, we can't talk all day. And I just wanted to just a, a couple of tips now as we go down on on each of these from your experience, Sarah. I think it it really is to uh, embrace, you know, co collaboration, uh, which is something that I deeply believe in but have struggled with on different occasions so you know I grew I grew up as uh, my sister's eight years younger than me so I spent eight years as an only child very independent with perfectionist tendencies feeling like I should be able to do everything and, and that's quite a hard thing to let go of uh, and obviously a lot of habits you form early on in life kind of stay with you for a long time um, and also, you know, especially when you're rising in your career, you want the credit for stuff, don't you? You're like, I'm good at this. I want people to recognize I'm good at this. Uh, and, and so that can lead you to kind of feel like you've got to have all the answers and do everything on your own. It's not very helpful. 
and it, you can learn that the hard way. So I guess my my advice would be learn how to collaborate well early on. It will send, stand you in good stead uh, later. And you cannot, you literally cannot get anything good done in this world unless you are collaborating. And it's a, you know, for me at least, it's been a lifelong journey trying to figure out the best way of doing that. I wouldn't claim to be an expert. I'm sure the people that I work with would say I'm definitely not, but I try very hard to figure out how you get the dynamics of collaborating with people, right? And especially in my position, how you lead and give structure, but also give a lot of freedom and permission at the same time so that you're not holding things up. And so my my own personal struggle is always trying not to be a bottleneck. Uh, and I know that that continues to be a, a kind of point of, of, of work for me. So, so yeah, I think learning how to collaborate early on and getting good at it will, in, I mean, it will undoubtedly accelerate your progress. Yeah, no, beautifully put and, and great wisdom in that. And, and you've, throughout your story, you've talked about, some, you know, as we all face these challenges, what's your top tip on resilience, coping with adversity and setback, if you were to give one bit of wisdom to people listening? Uh, no, it will end. Nothing stays the same for, for forever and certainly not for very long, perhaps longer than you want it to. Um, there will always be another side and uh, the sun will always come out and you will be stronger for it. Uh, perhaps it will take you a while to recover and perhaps it will be very bruising, um, but you will definitely come out the other side. I think that's, that, that would be my top tip. And it's certainly what I would say to myself during really difficult times. Um, yeah. And whether things are going well or whether they're going badly, um, you can be sure they're going to change. So you, you better get used to the ride. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, memento mori. Remember, you will die. You know, this too shall pass, whether it's good or bad. You know, um, King Solomon had his slave say to him, whispering in his ear, when it was good, he said, this too shall pass. Sir. When it was bad, he said, this too shall pass. Sir. Um, I, I like that. Brand, your favorite topic. Brand quotient, uh, your reputation, uh, influence, impact, what people say about you when you're not there. What have you learned from your own 360 reports that you've done over the years um, about you know, mistakes and lifelong learning? Really? Uh, I think uh, the, the key thing with taking on feedback is learning how to lower your own defenses. Uh, I think there's two things actually that are important, um, discernment and not being defensive. Uh, I've had lots of good and bad feedback over the years. Uh, and I think you have to use your own judgment to some degree as to what's useful. And I think you have to be very uh, undefended and open uh, to what you're, what you're hearing and, and seeing. And, that, and I think that's difficult, you know, because we all have constructs around who we are and who we'd like to be. And it's it's never much fun taking a hit on that if you're hearing things that you, you know, are critical. Um, and of course, we all take the critical stuff to heart more than we take the good stuff. We tend to, every review I've ever sat in, whether I'm doing it, whether I'm receiving it, has always been a kind of like, yeah, 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 but get to the bad stuff. We're all waiting for the other shoe to drop, aren't we? So, you know, you, you, I think you have to use your, good, your own good judgment about what to take away and what's most useful. But you also have to be very undefended about how you absorb feedback. And you would hope people giving it to you would, would do that in a way that makes it more comfortable for you to, to be able uh, to do that. And then I think beyond that, the two things that are really important to me are um, 
congruity. Like you've got to have, there's got to be coherence between what you say you do and how you act and shortening the gap between the two again is a bit of a life lifelong commitment and you've got to recognize you're not always going to get that right and that's okay you just have to be working on it and then I think consistency uh and especially if you're in a leadership position I think the thing that really psychs people out and can be quite hurtful actually is if you are constantly bouncing around and they can't get a read on who you actually are and where your expectations are and so I think you have to figure out the kind of right level of consistency to help everybody get on a an even keel with how what to expect from you yeah no uh, that, that, that sort of stability rather than the excitable the, this person's great no they're not and this project's great no it's not anymore um legacy um your legacy question you know stewardship leaving you know as you say you're not gonna be the global ceo of wolf Olin's forever um what would you like your legacy to be leaving things better than you found it you know how how if you were to call out one thing that you think is important in leaving a legacy, what would it be? So I think in work terms, if I think in work terms rather than anything else, um, you know, I joined a business that I hold, held then and still hold in very high regard. Uh, I don't think there are many businesses that take their, their kind of um, social commitment as well as their commercial commitment quite so deeply and care so much. Uh, and want to do the right thing by by the people it serves. So having joined an organisation that I believe to be like that, I want to make sure I, I hold that in trust for the next generation. And so it's, it's really important to me that, you know, when I'm not there anymore, people join an organisation and feel the same, uh, that this isn't, you know, these are not people who say one thing and do another. Uh, or feel superficially about these things. You know, they, they really care about the work they do and the meaning of it and how it can be useful. And they want to make a difference and, and they want to relate to the clients that we work with as people in their own right, not as commercial objects, you know. So these things are really important to me. So if I was going to leave a legacy and I, I you know, I'm not important enough to leave, leave some grandiose legacy it's you know I want it to be better than it was when I arrived and still have the same meaning and value for people who who join after I do mm, that's no that's lovely and I would I would want to work in an organization like that I think that's lovely and, and within your organization you have a number of teams uh, you lead an executive team um, over the 30 years what, what's been your experience both in your organization and organizations that you've done uh, advice to about their brands and how they come across um a, a tip about turning a a slightly toxic team into a high performing team what what's your your major bit of advice on that do you know i i i think it would be impossible to narrow that down to one thing uh i think it's it's a combination of a handful of things um so i think you have to create some collective sense of purpose uh, you have to give people a meaningful role in that and you have to be generous in terms of thinking they can achieve within that. And then I'm, I am struck, it's the last point I go to with good reason, but I am struck by something that an HBS uh, professor shared with me, which is sometimes to change people, you have to change people. And I think I've, I've learned possibly the hard way that sometimes you you literally just have to change the the 
the team itself in order to change the dynamic and get a better result. Mm. And, and and you can't really get away with that in some you get away from that in some instances and so you need to be prepared to act in order to construct the right complement of skills the right complement of uh experiences and the right sort of energy coming from different places to be able to achieve what you need to to achieve you need to assemble your you know your super team really to make good stuff happen and especially at an exec level if you want other things to flow from that in the rest of the organization yeah so so very true um I, I do love that one to change people you have to change people and um i think you can try very hard but after a while sometimes they're they're not for changing or you want to help them find their happiness elsewhere because it's it's just not the right combination here doesn't mean that they won't do very well elsewhere um final question and then we'll do the two minute top tip um if you were to pick, and you've read widely and deeply, but if you were to pick a favorite book on leadership, um, which one would you mention and why would you recommend it to those listening, Sarah? So I'm going to get quite practical and pragmatic rather than esoteric here. And I think for any new manager or leader, I'd recommend the first 90 days. Um, which is which just happens to be actually by um, Harvard Business School Press. And I think it's just a really good all-round practical guide to some of the things you sh you're going to have to think about before you start a sort of leadership position. And it gives you a nice 360, you know, here's how to think about yourself, here's how to think about constructing a team, here's how to think about managing upwards, sideways, downwards, whatever way you want to talk about it. Um, so I think it's quite a nice, you know, well-rounded model for, for any, you don't even have to be a new leader, you know, into a new role. I think that's like mm. super practical. Yeah. Um, and then if I was to, to sort of think beyond that, um, I, I find um, the kind of philosophers, you talked about the Stoics, but I, I find reading widely and taking on board different kind of concepts super interesting and and I couldn't really pin that down to one thing, but it just gives you a different way of kind of feeling and looking at the world. And it's good to expand your horizons. So everyone, I, I encourage everyone to keep doing that. Yeah, I, I would agree that. And I also found it quite interesting just reading people's uh, autobiographies or biographies. Um, very interesting. The lives that people have. And, and, and I think of General Colin Powell and his book, which called It Worked For Me. In leadership and life but it doesn't mean it works for everybody as you said to me earlier um okay uh, would you mind introducing yourself again and your organization and share with us your two minute top leadership tip sarah yeah i'm very happy to so uh hello i'm sarah sarah ashman from all Lins, uh global brand consultancy and my top tips are always be listening and always be learning it will definitely make you better at what you uh, what you set out to do. And my second is uh, a very personal learning I've developed over time. So I was brought up very much to treat people as you would like to be treated. And I lived by that philosophy for a long time. And then I, I started to realize that actually a better one is um, treat people as they would like to be treated. And that, that is a much more um, useful and empathetic way to be and certainly helps you walk in their shoes and understand how to relate to them in ways that are far more positive and effective. So yeah. those would be my top tips. 
Brilliant. Well, Sarah, thank you very much uh, for coming on and, and sharing your, your experiences of life, but also why Wolf Allens means so much to you. They're very lucky to have you as their global CEO, and we wish you and them every success with helping the brands around the world. But thank you for being on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for, for having me. I look forward to the next time. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.